This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. Dr. Hartman's journey with functional medicine started when he and his wife adopted their first daughter from foster care. She has cerebral palsy and countless dietary issues. They went from specialist to specialist, and even as a physician, he felt let down and confused. His daughter's health struggles forced him to confront an uncomfortable realization. Our current health care system doesn't have all the answers. His wife, however, refused to give up hope. She ultimately pointed him to functional medicine. His daughter and other two kids began to thrive. After years in family practice, he felt called to make a dramatic shift. He now helps patients identify leverage points in key areas of their lifestyle and health that harness their body's remarkable power to heal and begin living the vibrant life they deserve. Aaron, welcome to the show. Mark, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. I, you know, I, I've only had a couple doctors out of all these episodes, like 950 episodes and counting on my show. I think you're only the second or third actual doctor on my show. And I'm excited because you went to medical school and you know, the truth, there's a lot of stuff. Let's call it poop emoji out on the internet right now. And it's like, is this true? Is that true? I don't know. You're in scrubs. You're on TikTok, but are you a doctor? I don't know. And so I want to thank you for coming on the show today and helping us, uh, you know, navigate through the truth. Yeah. There's just so much misinformation out there. And, and as COVID came around and as I've been doing, I've, I'm also a clinical researcher. I've got a clinical research company. And just as I was getting, getting interviews and talking to people, I just realized how, even if I talk to someone for half an hour, when they do those little 30 second news blasts on you know, NBC 12 or whatever, it's amazing how much of what I say doesn't make it and how biased it is. It's just, this whole thing has opened my eyes about how, how bad most information is out there and how it's really hard to get a good message out there, um, unless you already have a, um, a platform. Mm. I'm going to say something that some of my listeners are going to get really mad at me about, and some are going to go, yep, that's me. So I'm not vaccinated. Okay. I don't have the COVID vaccine. And there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm a hermit. I, I never leave my house. You know, I go to church once a week. I don't leave the home. And when I read the studies from the CDC that says that 98 point with 99.8% people will recover. I'm 56. I take care of myself. I run every day. And so I'm like really hesitant on getting the vaccine. And the other problem is, is that they're pushing. Everyone's got to get it, got to get it, even though you can still get it and receive it. And I'm like, I don't know the truth. You go to the CDC. You, of course, you watch the mainstream media, which is the, the narrative that the government wants you to put out. So what are your thoughts on the COVID vaccine? I mean, I mean, I know older people probably should get it because, you know, they're, they're immune, immunocompromised. They probably should get it. But do you think healthy people really need to get it? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, the, 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 I agree with your perspective that there's so much bad information out there. And the problem was like when the narrative started, the vaccine was pushed. This is going to stop all COVID. We're going to stop in the tracks. We're going to eradicate it from the world. And as a clinic, I'm, I'm one of the clinical researchers with Pfizer. We have close to 800 patients in my study. We're one of the biggest actually in um, the United States with them. Like just looking at the science, it's like a coronaviruses account for 15% of runny noses any given time of the year. And 30% of lung infections during flu seasons are a coronavirus. This is probably going to mutate and eventually become just like H1N1 did in 1918, 1920. You know, H1N1 now is the regular flu. You know, in 1918, 1920, it killed 1% of the population in America. Some countries, 4 to 6% of the population. Now it's the good old-fashioned flu. My, my thoughts were this is probably going to be the exact same thing with this. But the narrative was the vaccine is going to eradicate it. And so the problem was you have people who don't really didn't know the, like how the science saying this is going to be the cure. And now we've got data saying, look, you know, half of people who get the vaccine can still spread it and they'll spread it with the same viral counts as unvaccinated people. And so the, the, the vaccine is primary purpose is not to prevent spread because, you know, 50% is a coin flip, right? Mm -hmm. It's to prevent death and hospitalization. And, I, and I've been saying that since last year, this is the purpose of this is not to prevent spreads to prevent death and hospitalization. And the problem is like when you have so many voices saying the wrong narrative over and over and over again, when you start believing it, you know, um, the president came out two weeks ago and was like, hey, boosters, let's start getting boosters, right? People started going, going to Walgreens and CVS asking for boosters. The problem is our data for boosters haven't been given to the FDA yet. And so you've got from all levels, from the highest level to like just the regular level, people taking little snippets, throwing stuff out there. And then when people 
I, the, the data actually comes out, people are like, well, this is wrong. They don't know what to believe. And another, another thing I tell people is that science, this is kind of going back to my philosophical training back in my seminary days, you know, um, you know, science is like a river. You've got the you've got the, the the borders, right? You've got the sides. You've got the trees. That is firm. That doesn't change. The method of scientific evaluation is is solid. The data itself is like the river. Every time you put your toe in the river, it's a different river. And when you realize that half of all publications in the medical literature, according to you know Dr. Ioannis at POLS, which is the biggest online medical journal in the world, half of research findings are later found to be false. And so in science, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of changing. And the narrative has been, follow this brick building that's unchanging. I'm like, that's not the reality of what we're talking about. And when people have been misinformed for a year, what do you do, right? And that's where I think we're at. It's just been so, so, such a bad, between social media, between the news, between all this stuff. And even, you know, one of the first interviews I did with the local news station about the vaccine, you know, when they finally went to air, they're like, Dr. Hartman, who, who made the COVID-19 vaccine. And I'm like, I'm just a clinical researcher. I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I talked to you for half an hour and now I'm going to get phone calls from people about wrong information. And they assume because you're on the news, mm-hmm. it's got to be right. And that's the problem is like, they've assumed that if you, if you, if you have a platform, if you have a voice, if you have something out there, you must be right. And the reality is, is that's, that's just not the case. Now, I heard a couple terms uh, late 2020 and started hearing it all over the place. Could scientific method versus scientific consensus. Could you explain to us what the difference is? Because I, I, I heard that good scientists do one way. I'm not really sure on that. So can you, can you elaborate on that for us? Well, well, scientific method is the way in which we collect data. And there's different, different, there's different kinds of studies. There's randomized trials, which is what we're doing right now with the vaccine. There are population-based studies. There are um, a whole host of different, you know, case study, case reports. You know, medicine back 100 years ago was largely case report driven. It was, let's go to university, a bunch of smart guys. I've had these cases. I've dealt with these people. This is my experience. And that's how we learned. And so the current um, way in which we learn is different than it was, you know, 50, 100 years ago. Um, but it's largely based on these randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. That's your, that's your study. Um, the, it's a certain method that we study. The problem is, is that in clinical medicine, we deal with patients. And you are a study of one. And by definition, there is no study that can actually apply to you because you are you. We take a, a group of 10,000 people. And we, we, we kick out the people who aren't compliant. We kick out the people that are too old. We kick out the people that are too young. We kick out the people who can't follow up, which is like half the people I see, right? All the, we've created this fake population of people and we study them. The, what's supposed to happen is a, a medical doctor like me, a clinical scientist, takes that data and then interprets it based on my experience of actually using the data in real life. But what, happen, but what happens at an academic level is they say, no, 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 this is the study, the article Therefore, you must do X, Y, Z. And again, the problem is half of that stuff. And I learned in medical school in 1996 that half of what I knew, half of what I was being taught in school would later be found to be false. My professor just didn't know which half. And so you've got half of clinical research articles, the findings will later be found to be false. And half of what I learned in school is is later found to be untrue. That's the reason you need well-trained, well-experienced clinicians who've actually been in the weeds for years and years and years talking about this, not people that are siloed in academic you know, institutions who don't actually have any boots in the ground experience. And that's where there's different levels of science, there's different levels of, of practitioners. You know, um, and I've had the advantage of practicing in five different um, continents, seeing over 100,000 patients in these places. Um, I've actually seen people with malaria and with tuberculosis in Ecuador and Honduras. I've actually seen military wounded people and when my military, when I was a physician over in Germany. And so that gives you a breadth of understanding to interpret literature and data. And it's, it's, it's more nuanced than here's an article, do this. And unfortunately, when we talk about top-down kind of approach, which we're seeing right now, it's very much, this is the article, do this. And the problem is, is that later, when we, as we learn more and more, we learn that actually, you know, the vaccine doesn't prevent spread, which is the reason the CDC went back to wearing, recommending masks on this past summer. And it just confuses people. And they don't know what to trust. Here's my issue between the vaccines and the masks. Okay, if you're telling everybody that they have to wear a mask, and then this thing eventually, like, burns itself out, 
Well, then you can stop wearing a mask. But once you take the vaccine, from what I've learned, and I didn't go to medical school, let me just preface that, these spike proteins are forever in your body. So you can't like, like get rid of them. It doesn't go away. And so I'm not sure on that. But what I think I want to ask you, your opinion, I, this is just your medical opinion. If everyone in America got vaccinated, do you think that COVID would go away or do you think it's just going to be like the, the Spanish flu of 1918, which became our annual flu? Is that what we're eventually going to have to deal with anyways? So they, I, they, when they, they talked about the novel coronavirus, right? It was novel. You know, how many, how many first kisses do you get, right? You get one. The, the, this, virus, this virus is new to you once in your life. And once your immune system gets educated, you've actually been exposed either through a vaccine or through natural exposure, and you've always been able to make a immune response. When it, come, when it mutates and you get another variation, you get the lambda, you get the mu after the delta, right? It's not novel anymore. Your body already kind of recognizes it. It recognizes certain nuances because it's in, it's in the same family. It's, it's a variant. And your body can make antibodies in two to three days. It takes about seven to 10 days for your body to make antibodies to a novel virus, which is the reason why people, people get sick, they have a fever for like a week, right? Versus last time when I had a flu, last time I had a flu, I had a fever for a day or two because I've been exposed to the flu so many times. My body already had a repertoire. It's your, your, your body is, this is the thing people don't read. Your, your body is making millions of antibodies a day to things you've never been exposed to. It's actually making random antibodies it's got this amazing capacity just to make antibodies to attack whatever. And it's always doing this. And so when you get exposed to a virus or something like that, your body already might have antibodies kind of sort of that look like it mm. if you've already been exposed to it, like an old flu or an old coronavirus, but not with SARS-CoV-2. It's novel. So it takes your body a while to ramp up. You know, 50% of the population will have no symptoms. You know, if you're a kid, you'll have maybe a little runny nose. You know, I'm actually personally getting over COVID. Um, I got a couple of weeks ago and was had a fever for a week, missed, you know, a week and change of work. You know, when my, when my kids got, they had a fever for a day. You know, one of them had no symptoms whatsoever, you know, but for all of those people, you've got the 0.3% of the population who are going to get this and die. And that's what we're kind of balancing it. And so, and then like, what are the major risk factors? The biggest risk factor for death is um, age. The biggest nutrient risk factor for death is vitamin D status. 87% of people who die with this have low vitamin D. And when I was talking about that a year ago, it was like people are like, oh, that's so weird. Why would you mention vitamin D? There's no data for that. And I'm kind of like, you've been talking about vitamin D for decades. <laughs> like, I mean, like vitamin D, like conceptually, you get exposed to a new virus, right? That's your, your innate immune system. And it grabs it and starts making, you know, cytokines and you have a fever and all that kind of jazz. The conversion to make antibodies requires this hormone called vitamin D. And if the hormone's low, it takes longer to convert to make these antibodies. So we've known from flu data and other viral data that vitamin D stash directly impacts severe illness. What we now know is that you know, 87% of people who die with this have low D. We know that in the black, Asian, minority ethnic groups, the biggest risk factor was not skin color, it was vitamin D status. And in the UK, in the UK, they started mailing vitamin D to people with lung disease last summer. Oh, wow. And, and Ireland had a whole manual they put out talking about vitamin D status on your risk for COVID. They were talking about this in the UK last year. And we mentioned it here and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, nutrition, it's not a pharmaceutical drug. How do you know it works? What's your proof? And I'm like, you know, define proof, define studies. And like, that's where I use populations. I use all data. I use population studies. I use case-based studies. I use bench research studies. I use it all. I don't just limit myself to one kind of study. And that's what you have to realize when people talk about data and study in, in, in the typical media, they're referring to just one kind of data. And people don't come to me for one type of view. They want the holistic, big picture. And that's what I get people. It requires me to keep up with all this stuff. I'm so glad you mentioned vitamin D because for a number of months, my wife used to tell me, the best way to get vitamin D is from the sun. And she would go out and sunbathe every day. And I'm like, what are you doing? It's hot outside. And then I started doing the research and what you said, vitamin D, and you can't overdose from the vitamin D from the sun. So I got this app on my iPhone called D-Minder and it knows the, you know, the degree of the sun and what they call solar noon and stuff like that. And so I, they recommend you have 40 micro 
micrograms per milliliter or something like that. And I'm like, I got 56 or something like that. Cause I go out whenever it's sunny. We, we just had tropical storm Nicholas this week. So it's overcast, but whenever I can, I go outside for like 45 minutes to an hour and I keep turning over so I don't get burned. And I think that's one of the reasons why, like my church, we don't have any social distancing. Nobody wears a mask. I think it's because I'm working on building my immune system. And one of the problems I have is when people like, well, no, I still want to eat McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and have cupcakes and cookies and ice cream and smoke and be overweight. I'll just take a vaccine. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But why don't you take care of yourself first? Because what you're doing by eating that way, when you have a bad lifestyle, and you know this better than I do, if you're not, then your body's already weakened. And that's why when you get something like COVID, you get it worse because your body, it, it's already worn down. If you take care of yourself, like I try to take care of myself, I run every day, vitamin D, drink mostly water and stuff like that. I, I'm probably stronger. My immune system's probably stronger. And, but it's almost like people don't want to take care of themselves. They just want a miracle medicine that they can take and still lead and live a really crappy lifestyle. Does your to-do list have you overwhelmed? When you join my digital productivity coaching program, you'll learn how to get and stay focused, become untangled from the chaos of your to-do list, experience less overwhelm, and have time to do what you really want to do. Sign up today by clicking the coaching tab at mrproductivity.com. Well, I think you know, our, our healthcare system is primarily based on the same model that it was for our grandparents. You have an acute issue, you get pneumonia, the magic, you know, antibiotics were a magical cure back in the 30s and 40s, right? You get appendicitis, you used to die, now we cut it out and you live, right? You get cancer, you know, back in the 50s, the whole research model we use now is actually based on stuff from the National Cancer Institute for initially with methotrexate, magically cured these cancers that are uncurable, right? So that's like, that's the model, but the reality is, is now when chronic illness is the biggest killer of people, heart disease and cancer, not pneumonia, not these infections, we're kind of stuck in this acute care model where we're now in a chronic care world. And the chronic care world is just like you said, how do you change the milieu? How do you change the, the garden, right? How do you make it more robust? You know, the, your microbiome, which is the composition of all the bacteria in your body, the, you know, there's great data on microbiome health actually from a year ago. The reason, one of the reasons kids don't get as bad of COVID as adults is their microbiome is more diverse. Mm. The biggest driver for your microbiome is what you eat, you know? Um, so, you know, nutritional status, you, you tend to have, as you get older, you know, 40% of um, individuals over 65 have low zinc levels. And if your zinc is low, it increases your risk of hospitalization with COVID almost 50%. Mm. You know, so all of a sudden we're learning like age affects nutritional status. The older you are, you have less stomach acid, you have lower B vitamins. B vitamins are important for your health, you know? So there's that whole aspect. And then there's the whole aspect of air quality. You know, we knew last summer that, you know, Wuhan province, Lombardy, um, Italy, um, London, New York City, these are all places with high particulate counts from burnt petroleum products, i.e. gas and things like that. And that inflames your lungs and activates these things called ACE receptors in your lungs and makes you more prone for inflammation and infection. You know, so that's stuff we knew a year ago. So, hey, I was talking about, hey, let's get some HEPA filters, filter out the air. Well, guess what? All these places have HEPA filters now. The planes have them on there now. But but when I mentioned that and I put that on social media last year, Facebook um, said it was political speech and they blocked me. And I was quoting from a, the British Medical Journal, which is one of the biggest well-known you know, medical journals in the English speaking world. So I think the idea you're talking about, like the milieu, your, your garden, like if your diet is huge. Um, stress, sleep, you know, we, if you sleep eight hours at night versus six hours, that increases your risk of a severe pneumonia 40 to 60%. Wow. You know, and if you look at the average American now sleeps about six to six and a half hours versus eight and a half hours in the mid 1800s, that's a risk factor for you know, your, when your immune system builds itself back up when you sleep every night. Mm -hmm. If you decrease that by 25%, that's going to affect your immune system the following day. That's going to make your cortisol high because it's a stressor and high cortisol then gives you this thing called leaky gut. So all of a sudden knocking in a chronic stress, who's got stress these days, right? That affects your immune system as well. So that's where this whole integrative functional medicine model looks at all these things, looks at you, Mark, and say, Hey, let me, tell me, tell me about you, your history, where you're from, where you live, air quality in your environment, the water you drink, you know, 20% of um, water in the city from municipalities has measurable levels of arsenic in it. You know, all these things that are play into the, the problem is like, this is the, this is for chronic healthcare, functional integrated medicine kind of stuff. And the whole insurance model, the reimbursement model is based on acute, acute episodes of care.
And so what happens with COVID is we've got this thing where, you know, half of our country is diabetic or pre-diabetic. You know, a third of our country is obese. Um, 82% of people with skin color have low vitamin D level. 40% of those over 60 have low zinc. 40 to 60% of Americans have a low, one of the low B vitamins. And there's a bunch of those. All of a sudden, it's like these are things that can infect your risk for, you know, any viral infection, any pneumonia. You know, 90, there's a nutrient. Here's, here's a good, 98% of people admit to the hospital lack, have low levels of this nutrient, vitamin D. And, and, and how much does it cost? It's like, what, 12 bucks for a bottle of stuff? But because there's not randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, which is the gold standard, if you say these things, you're like, well, that's quackery. It's not real medicine. I'm kind of like, how many thousands of articles do you need <laughs> before? And I, I just and I just remind people, like, there's this guy called Ignaz Simmelweis. He was an um, a Austrian-German uh, physician in the 1800s, 1830s. And he created this novel intervention called hand washing. <laughs> and he was ostracized because German physicians are like, I'm a gentleman. I cannot, there are no, bu- these creatures you talk about, it's, it's, it's craziness. It's, it's, it's doesn't, it's not real. I'm a German gentleman. It's impossible for me to have little bugs on my hands. And he was ostracized, kicked out of the medical community. That was back in the day when we, we jailed crazy people. He got jailed, he got beaten. And he died from a staph infection, which is the infection he was trying to prevent in women in the hospital. And it was interesting because a lot of it was jealousy because his hospital, when he stopped letting people go from dissections to deliver babies, overnight, the women getting infections and dying in the hospitals almost disappeared. Wow. And he, and he lost everything over hand washing. And then you think about um, smoking in the United States. It took us 50 years and 7,000 research articles before the Surgeon General of the United States said smoking causes cancer. And so my question is, do you want to wait that 50 years? Do you want to wait that 30 years? Or do you want to look at, well, look, well, who, who's kind of cutting edge? Who's looking at hand washing and D and zinc and air quality? And what's the harm in a HEPA filter and some vitamin D? That's, that's a good point. And on July 26th, my wife and I decided to go keto. And we we actually have a podcast called Mark and Michelle Go Keto. And we're sharing our journey. And what was, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a natural born skeptic. So when says, someone says, this is going to work, I'm like, eh, I've heard that before. But I listened to Gary Tobb's book, The Case for Keto. And he was explaining that people that go keto, they like sometimes come off their medicines, they feel better. Because what happens is on the standard American diet, sad, our bodies are just inundated with all these chemicals and processed air quotes here, food. And it works so hard. The gut biome is an utter train wreck because you're eating donuts and McDonald's and everything like that. And I can tell you, I've been on keto since July 26 and I feel better. And I'm not that much overweight. My goal weight's 185. I'm down to 193. I run every day. I feel great. And, but these are things that don't cost you any money. And I think that goes back to what I said earlier. People, they want to maintain their current lifestyle, but just give me a, uh, give me a shot or let me take a pill. Mm. And I'm like, why don't you just take better care of yourself? Stop smoking, you know, stop doing, drinking this beverage or going out to McDonald's and they don't want to do that. I, I think that people, they just want the miracle of medicine to cure them. We already have, uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria. And my biggest fear is we keep vaccinating against COVID. And of course, I don't have nearly as uh, the amount of information you do. I'm afraid that eventually we're going to have a mutation that is going to like your virus, you know, your vaccine. I don't care. Someone shared something on social media and I don't know where they got it from. I think they said the CDC. I could be wrong. But the variants really started when the vaccine started. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. Maybe you can speak to this. In other words, we had like, I don't know, three or four variants. And then we started uh, vaccinating people. And all of a sudden, the variants started, you know, getting getting worse. Because what I learned in the book, The Code Breakers from Walter Isaacson, which is all about gene editing, they said that there are bacteria that are now immune to viruses because over all the millions and millions of years, the bacteria learn how to adapt to fight off viruses. Can you speak to anything about that? Is it is that is that factual or is that just something that's not true about the variants? Well, I think you if you look at the actual current Delta variant, that first popped up actually back in January of twenty twenty one. Correct. Yeah, 
So, so that actually has been around for a while. And you look at the variants, the variants pop up usually six months or so before they become a variant of concern oh, okay. or they become um, a variant of special interest. And the difference is, is one is like, hey, you got this thing, we're going to watch it. One is like, oh my gosh, it's actually more dangerous. But we're usually seeing them six months before they actually kind of come through town, so to speak. And with the Delta, it was actually, you know, um, around before mass vaccination was occurring oh, you know, wow. in the United States. Yeah, it was already it was already in existence. Um, I think part of the issue is when in the history of humanity have we had the ability to genetically map a virus anywhere in the world in a week? Mm. And that's that's part of the problem is we we got these massive microscope and we're looking at stuff and people don't know how to interpret the data. You know, for example, the COVID virus, we actually now know the COVID virus, actually the, the original one, was in the septic, in the, in the sewer system in um, Barcelona, Spain, one year in, in March 2019. Oh, wow. Before, yeah. So it was already even around. And so, and, and they found that out retrospectively. Now they're, now they're actually looking at sewer systems in major cities to say, hey, how are things changing? Because, hey, by the way, COVID, we poop it out, right? It affects your GI tract and lungs. Um so, you know, it's, there's, we just look, we have so, we have the ability literally to watch this thing mutate step by step by step by step. And the only other virus we actually have ever done that with is with flu, right? The H1N1, H2N3, H3N5, we'd know what the strains were at. And we had to know, you know, six or nine months in advance so we could start using eggs and, and the UK actually in Britain and make the little, um, take the embryos and infect them to get the antibodies. And then that's, you know, how the vaccine started. But before this, the, the flu was the only thing we watched that closely. Well, now we're watching it with a fine tooth comb. And it's almost like we have too much information mm-hmm. and everybody's speculating. And then we have too many people speculating. You know, the reality is, is coronavirus is one of the reasons why it's been, we haven't been able to have a, a a vaccine against an, a, a rhinovirus or a coronavirus or an adenovirus or even HIV is because of the way they mutate so quickly. You have to find something in the virus that doesn't mutate, that's stable, that you can create a vaccine against. And so with these respiratory tracts, it's been so difficult. And because, hey, we've never had one that bad until you know, you know, SARS-CoV-2, we haven't really had the the need for a vaccine. We focused on influenza. But the, the reality with the... the um, the variants is they actually are around a long, long time before they pop up in the media and they start talking about stuff. And, and that's with all the variants. You got the Lambda and the U now that we're looking at that don't appear to be that bad. We're just watching them. Um, they, they're, they actually, in Colombia, I think the Mu now is the biggest variant in Colombia now. Um, but, we're just, but they're not that bad and they're not as bad as a Delta. So we're just kind of watching them. But there's more, and there's going to be more variants that are going to come. We're just watching this way. We're watching this thing way too closely. And we're not, we don't, we're, no, one's, no one's taking back and taking a 10,000 foot view of what all this actually means. They're just, oh my gosh, a new variant. And that's not going to stop. This thing, this thing's not going anywhere. It's going to be the new normal. It already is. Just like H1N1 became the new normal for flu. Um, and we need to accept the fact that the vaccine's not going to eradicate this. It's going to give you an immune boost so that's not, your immune system's not novel to this thing whenever you get exposed. And we need to just change our, change our verbiage and change what we're thinking about. We're still stuck in this idea. We're going to somehow eradicate this. We're going to win this war. I'm like, this is not, that's not the way it works. So let me ask you this. Let's pretend for a moment that you are president Aaron Hartman. Okay. A lot of people are, they're like, no way I'm going to inject myself with the toxins because they go to social media and they, you know, they have a lot of doctors are one of the people I know who's an anti-vaxxer is Dr. McCola. He's not anti-vaxxer. He's anti-COVID vaccine. And so there's some really reputable people that are say, don't get the shot. Like Dr. Mo- Robert Malone, who created uh, the spike protein. He says, don't get it. There are people on the other side. And I don't think the mandates are, it's going to only entrench people who are saying, I'm not going to get the vaccine. So if you were president and there's all this information out there on social media, on, you know, the, 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 the mainstream media, all this newscast, and you got all these people, some believe this, some believe that, and you have to do what's right for the nation. What would you do if you were president in order to encourage people without, getting into the rhetoric without getting into scare tactics, what would you say to the American people? I mean, the first thing is my wife would never let me run for public <laughs> office like that. So it's, it's fine. It's fine. Never going to happen. So she's like, so, but, but theoretically, if, if, if you could, if it could happen, you know, I, I would just, one of the things I do is I look at people smarter than me that have figured things out and I say, what are they, what are they doing in the UK? 
And like, for example, in the UK, they vaccinated, um, they did one jab for all the elderly people first. And their goal was to prevent people from dying. Our goal was to prevent the virus from spreading. So we gave it to teachers and you know, frontline workers. And we didn't give it to the people that are dying. Why? Why did we not focus on the elderly? If you know that the vast majority of people that die from this are older, why don't you focus on them first? Because our, our focuses were different. And the UK as well, they've looked at the data with the vaccine in kids and they've decided, hey, we're not going to vaccinate kids or pregnant women. You know, like why can't we learn from our our colleagues across across the pond, you know, the way they're doing things. Why is what we're doing right and what they're doing wrong? You know, um, if you look at the Scandinavian countries, the way they dealt with it initially, you know, when, when this thing came around. So my perspective, if our, if our goal is to save lives, then you want to focus on the people most likely to die, right? Um, which are the elderly. I My bigger concern, to be honest with you, with all this, are the two groups that are most harmed by isolation, kids and the elderly, I have so many older patients with early dementia that have gone downhill this year because they've lost access to physical therapy. They've lost access to their friends. They've been isolated. What happens when you're 80 and you're isolated? You get depressed. And if you have mild cognitive dementia, you basically go down, right? What happens to young kids that are isolated from their peers? They get anxious. Anxiety and mood disorders are going bonkers right now in kids. And so my thing is like, I'm a big picture kind of guy. You know, and the reality is for the 22-year-old college kid, they're going to be fine. You know, the 28-year-old college kid, they're going to be fine. If they get this, it's for most of these people, it's going to be a runny nose, right? If our goal is to save lives and prevent secondary side effects, i.e. this mental damage, you want to get kids back in school and get them normalized as quickly as possible. And you want to get the vaccine in the people that are high risk. The problem is we're focusing on the middle section and hyper-focusing on what we control. Let's mandate the vaccine and group X, Y, Z. And it's become a political thing where you have certain states are refusing to do this and other states um, aren't. And that's what I think the problem is. Everything has become so politicized that now if you're, you know, if, if you're anti-vaxxer and I'm pro-vaxxer, we can't have a conversation. We can't talk about it and then go after it. It's like, we should be able to share our ideas, talk about it. I use my, I, I educate you a little bit. You tell me your perspective. You know, the reality is, you know, um, if you're less than 50, this is like the flu. But if you, and this is where I think it, this is where people get scared. But if you have, if you're obese, this is horrible. Mm. If you're a diabetic, this is horrible. If you have sleep apnea, it's been undiagnosed, which is incredibly common. This is horrible. If you have uncontrolled high blood pressure, if your vitamin D level is low, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, obese, half the country is diabetic or pre-diabetic. You know, um, a third of Americans are obese. Okay. And all of a sudden you have a lot of healthy people, quote unquote, that actually are going to do poorly when they get this. And that's where I think people don't realize they see these healthy young, you know, XYZ. It's interesting. One of the, um, there's this, um, early on, this young kid from about that passed away from it. <clears throat> he's a sport, he's an athlete. And, um, so I, I, um, I see a lot of patients that, um, have hypermobility, which is they're kind of double jointed. And a lot of athletes, um, are double jointed, hypermobile, like Michael Phelps, and you can dislocate your shoulder and swim really fast, but it increases your risk for tissue inflammation. So like for mold or chronic Lyme or things like that, which I see a lot of these patients in my clinic. Well, when I saw some of these young, healthy athletes dying, I look at them, I'm looking at their facial features and it's like, you're hypermobile. You're a tall basketball player. You have your elongated face. Your, 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 your dental arch is a little small for your mouth. You know what? Probably the reason you passed away from this was you, you, you're an elite athlete that's hypermobile and the inflammation in your body got lit and didn't stop. And that's where I feel like educating people about this, all the things I've been learning for the last year about things you can see and identify. And people that are hypermobile are more prone to have trace mineral deficiencies and vitamin C deficiencies. But if you mention this, all of a sudden now it's like, oh my gosh, you're not talking about something that's approved by the FDA. And so I would, as quote unquote president, just educate people. I think that's the biggest thing. We've been hyper-focused on one, on one, one magic cure and not look at all the therapeutics. You know, if you look at some of the work from Dr. Merrick at Eastern Virginia Medical School, like the most published critical care specialist in the world. And his, his field of expertise is actually repurposing drugs, taking things like IV vitamin C and changing how we deal with sepsis patients in the ICU. He's, rad, he's radically changed that. He's, he's been cited over 40,000 times in the medical literature. When this all came out, he was like, are there things out there we can use? that can actually change the course of this. And I published in Lancet back in 2016, um, I did actually an NIH study looking at nonazoxanide, which is an antiparasitic to treat flu. 
and it did so well that after it got published, the NIH is like, we're just going to take this up and it never got, this is the medicine, never made it to market, it just got picked up. We've known about, you know, hydroxychloroquine is used in lupus patients who have chronic infections. Like we do this all the time in medicine. where We, we take medications, we repurpose them like Pepsid. If you get COVID in the hospital, Pepsid's an anti-inflammatory. It's a mass cell stabilizer. You know, it helps lower the severity of COVID or long COVID. You know, like these, these are things there's tons of data for that really smart people in really high places are using. I would educate people about that and say, look, there's, it's not just sit and wait and hope you don't die. And unfortunately, that was the mantra for almost a year. And it's really hard when people, and we've created almost this national trauma, you know, this, this trip where people are so stuck, still stuck in survival. And we say, hey, look, we're past this. We're through this. Mortality is 0.3%. Let's get our D up. Get your jab if you want to get it. Really get it if you're over 65 or you have another high risk factors. But we can't, we're so stuck in this trauma state that we can't have this conversation. Hey, you listening to the Mark Stuchowski podcast. Thank you so much for doing so. I really appreciate it. But are you a Mark Stuchowski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter, and you can sign up right now by going to mrproductivity.com. M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com. Yeah, you know, and you know, you, you said something very interesting. You, they made it political and People are name calling. Uh, I saw on Jimmy Kimmel the other night. There's a clip on a on the internet where he says, "Hey, uh, you got on ICU be- ICU bed, and you guy come guy come in. He's not back. So he's got a heart attack. Well, too bad you die. We don't need that. We don't need stuff like that. People laugh. We don't need that. Okay, we're all human beings. Okay, I don't like. I'm a Republican. I don't care for the Democrat way. But I would never want something bad to happen to Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer. They're human beings." And we got to get out of this like, I hate you because you're a pro-vaxxer. That's not going to solve anything, okay? When you're name-calling, when you're yelling at people, what that doesn't solve anything. And I agree with you. We've got to let the doctors and the scientists and the researchers do their work, and we need to keep the politics out of that because this whole divisiveness, this whole anger that's going on about COVID and the vaccine, it's not solving anybody anything because we're all so angry. I mean, I remember, I mean, this is September, 2021. I think it was in November or October of last year, 2020. I was feeling great in the morning and about maybe six o'clock at night, I started getting really sick. I mean, it was a tremendous onset, like really strong. I mean, I felt like crap. I mean, I couldn't sleep. I was profusely sweating. I couldn't keep anything down. I felt like I was going to die. And a day later, I felt fine, but because of COVID, I got tested that Friday and I didn't have COVID. So did I get COVID and my, my, my immune system is so strong it attacked it and eliminated it? I have no idea. I, I, I have no idea. All I know is my to- my COVID test back then was negative, but the, the point I'm trying to make is you can get mild symptoms, have COVID, not even know it. But we got it. We got to get the politics out of it. We got to stop calling people names. We got to stop telling people, well, if you got COVID, if you don't get vaccinated, I hope you die because we're all human beings and we, we shouldn't treat anybody like that. You know, the thing about it is we forget, you know, we have to know our national history. We have to know the way things have been done, how many people we've experimented on the past. And when, when this all started, you know, I, I practice outside of Richmond, Virginia, and there were a lot of African-Americans who didn't want to get tested in the city older because they're concerned they were going to be infected with the virus. And when I first heard that, I was like, well, that's kind of silly. But then I reminded one of my patients who's African-American, he's like, have you ever heard of Tuskegee? I'm like, you're right. And that didn't end until the seventies where we were watching government sponsored, watching African-American males with syphilis just to see what happens. You know, we, our government's done a lot of crazy things. And we, and we, and we, we, if we forget that and we assume we, our government only does good, we only do good things. That's, that's a dangerous place to be. You know, and it's if you look at all our history, our history is not amazing. I, I'm not. I'm someone who like likes to know our history and know our faults, so I don't repeat them. You know, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat mm-hmm. it. And how many times have we has our arrogance and our hubris made us do bad things? And in medicine, that happens all the time. Where we're like, I've never heard of that before. How can that be true? And there's actually this mantra in medicine. You know, something new. First, it's ridiculed. Um, okay, then it's attacked, vehemently attacked. Mm-hmm. And then it's accepted as dogma. That is the normal way in medicine. That's the way 
the first antibox, the first cancer drugs, hand washing, quitting smoking. That was really interesting. I was I was finishing a book called 1492, which is the history of the world after the Columbian Exchange. It was a really interesting book, but I was talking about in China in the 16th century, they were trying to get the tobacco trade out of China because they were seeing how adversely it was affecting their soldiers and the population. I'm like, the Chinese knew half a millennia ago, smoking was bad for you. <laughs> and yet in the 1970s, it was controversial here in the United States and the American Medical Association was like, we don't know if it's bad. And doctors were saying, you know what? I do lucky strikes because it helps suppress my cough. Like, if we don't know, that's part of our history. Like my, my thing in medicine is what, what am I, what am I going to tell you, Mark, right now is amazing for your health that 20 years from now, I'm going to be like, oh, sorry, dude, I was wrong. Like that's just my mindset because I know my history. And if, if you know your history, you realize, you know what? People have concerns for a reason and I need to address the root cause. Like why, why are you really concerned about this? Why do you distrust the government? Because we've done a lot of bad things. Why do you distrust physicians? Because you know, it, you know, it's really the fifth most common. Here, here's a great stat for you. The fifth most common cause of death in the United States is iatrogenesis. Mm. It's things. It's it's things doctors do. It's that <clears throat> medication side effect. Oh wow! It's a failed. Sur- it's a failed surgery. It's an antibiotic that causes a bad side effect. It's that knee replacement that ends up causing sepsis and dying. Right? If you put those together, it's the fifth most common cause of death. In our country. And I remember when I started practicing here, um, and the physician that was um, the start of the practice actually was a German guy from Canada that came to the United States because all the healthcare changes up in the United States in the 1970s. And it was really interesting because we still saw patients in the hospital at that point in time. And he was like, when I'm in the hospital, I'm trying to keep my patients being killed by all the stuff in the hospital. And, it, and when you realize, wait a second, you know, the wrong drug at the wrong time, the wrong diagnosis, the wrong thing, that happens all the time. And so having a healthy skepticism about healthcare in general, I think is, is, is a big deal. You know, when I, you know, I, when I go to trips, like in, um, last time I was actually in um, Honduras, it was really interesting because people are scared to go to the hospital down there because when you go to the hospital, you go there to die. Ah. So when people come to the hospital and you say, hey, I need to admit your kid, everybody just like loses it because they're like, oh my gosh, you're going to die. And it's like, the thought is like, in medicine, I can only do good things to help you is actually not correct. Every potential potion I give is a potential poison. Every cure can potentially kill. We have to realize that what we do has risks and benefits. And that's why I think being educated and talking about this, because people know this, everybody, everybody knows that they've had a loved one have some procedure, some medication, have a bad outcome, a surgical procedure they wish they didn't do. You know, And so I think in this whole conversation, no one's, no one's talking. We're ignoring that. That's crazy talk. This is 100% safe. I'm like, you know what? That's it's, it's really super safe when you compare to other vaccines. Um, and I think name calling and ignoring people's concerns doesn't, it only makes things worse. It only makes you more firm in your conviction and more, me more firm in my conviction. And the reality is, is that most of us are somewhere in the middle. Most of the country is, is to the left or the right of the middle. Most of us actually can agree on, hey, we should educate kids. Hey, we should have a, we should change our healthcare system. Hey, we should, you know, we should work on, you know, immigration things and whatnot. We we agree on the the issue. It's just we would disagree on the, the manner of doing it based on our underlying philosophical differences. But if we don't recognize that, we can't actually talk and work through and figure out the best way to get things done. I remember several years ago, I went to I was having problems with my neck, and I went to this orthopedic surgeon, and I my wife and I nicknamed them now Doctor Cut because he he did the X rays, and he goes, "Oh yeah, I do surgery." I'm like, "Whoa, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, I'm going to do surgery. You're not going to have as much mobility." And this is like about 15 years ago. And I'm like, I want a second opinion. I went to another guy who was a really good orthopedic surgeon and he goes, no, I wouldn't do surgery now. And it's just, you know, like you said, I did my research. Don't listen to the first doctor. If you don't like what he says and you get two or three opinions and they all say the same thing, maybe listen. But I think people are like, oh, Dr. Fauci knows everything. Uh, no, he doesn't know everything. He's a human being. Everyone's a human being. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. And I think if people just said, look it, let me do my own research, do the right research. Now I'm not talking, get your information from TikTok or from you know, LinkedIn, you know, go do your research, go look at CDC. But I wouldn't go, if you are 
if you're doing the research, I would steer clear of the very divisive publications. Like, for example, the Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times. They're far left. Everyone should get the jab, the whole nine yards. You might want not, not want to get your research from that. But I wouldn't go the same thing. I wouldn't go on the other side, who is all like, don't get the jab, you know, the exact opposite. Do your research. Go to the internet. Do your research read, maybe go get a book from the library, order a book, educate yourself, and then make an informed decision. I, I think too many people are just going, well, my friend got it, I'll get it. Or the government says to get it, I should get it. Think, do your own. And I think that's one thing we're lacking in our country. And I would say the world, a lot of people are doing things. They have no idea why they're doing something. They're just doing it because, well, someone told me to do it. Look, you have a brain. Everyone on this planet has a brain. Everyone has access. Well, most people have access to the internet. Do your own research. Do your own homework. You don't have to be a uh, a researcher like you, but you can do your own research and make your own informed decision. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what got me actually into functional medicine was when we adopted our first daughter. Um, we and she was about you know about a year old. The, um, the GI doctor had recommended putting a feeding tube into her because her weight was low. She was like less than the fifth percentile. So their their response was, let's put a feeding tube in. So you can pour formula in so she can grow, right? And my wife, who's a pediatric occupational therapist whose specialty was kids with special needs, talked to me about how this is going to affect speech and motor development. And and even though we're told my daughter would never walk or talk or et cetera, we had hope, we had faith that she was actually going to do these things one day, right? And so we opted out of that procedure. Six months later, my wife found a growth chart for kids with CP. My daughter was in the middle of that. And that like was the first time my eyes were opened. Wait a second, this expert at the University of Florida, who only do, does pediatric GI stuff, didn't know this growth chart was out there. And like, and the thing is, you do that two or three or four times, and it creates a certain degree of skepticism. And there's a reason why people get a second or third opinion. It's not because they they want to they're going to take the average of the three opinions. It's like this doesn't resonate with me. You told me something that's totally like hit me in the face. Let me make sure. Let me double check. And that's okay. I mean, if you're going to do something to your body that might have lifelong consequences, you know, getting a double or triple check is not a bad idea. But, you know, medicine is very hierarchical, um, very patriarchal, which means I told you, Mark, to do this. And if you don't do it, then get out of here, right? And it's like, well, if I value you as a person, I want you to, ha- to be, have 100% buy-in with whatever therapies we decide to do because, you know, they don't always turn out 100% okay. And that's just the reality of medicine, the reality of life. And, and to have absolutely, you know, the only absolutes, yeah, the only absolute is there's no absolutes, right? <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, well, before we wrap up today, is there anything else on your heart that you'd like to share with us today? I mean, I think this, you know, the biggest thing you're, what with medicine and with your health is to realize that, you know, half of all chronic disease in our country, and this is, published data um, can directly be related to eating processed food from the Harvard school of public health, 80% of heart disease and 70% of cancer can be prevented by diet and lifestyle alone. So the biggest tools in our toolkit for health and well-being aren't new fancy drugs. It's actually the basic foundational stuff, diet, lifestyle, exercise, sleep, relationships, stress reduction. These are the basic things for, for health and wellness. And so that's where, you know, that's my big, that's my takeaway. You know, yes, I've, I have cool supplements and cool nutrients. And yes, I do all kinds of cool things and research and yet, but those are all on top of the basics. And that, that's my, that's the biggest thing I think that I just, you know, that's the biggest thing we did. It changed the trajectory of our kids' health. Um, it's the biggest thing that changes the trajectory of my patient's health today is just the ba- the basics of the basics, the foundations, of the foundations. Um, and we need to focus on that. We're, we're too busy looking for the shiny, the shiny ring. We forget the most basic stuff. I am 56 years young and I take better care of myself today than I ever have. So I have an Apple watch. I track my sleep. So I know I don't think I'm getting enough sleep. I know how much sleep I'm getting. I track my, how much my water intake. I track my food using an app called chronometer. I'm running every day. So I am taking better care of myself now than I ever had before. But you know, what was the catalyst for that? When my mom got diagnosed with late onset Alzheimer's and I'm my parents only child. So I got a chance to talk to my mom's neuropsychologist. And I said, look at my mom's mom died of Alzheimer's. My mom will die of Alzheimer's unless something else gets her. Is there anything I can do? And I told him I'm a daily runner and all this other stuff. He says, we've been telling people from the beginning of the day, beginning of time, diet, exercise, and sleep. 
He goes, how much, how active was your mother or grandmother? I said, well, not really. How'd they eat? They ate a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, not good food. You know, they didn't take care of themselves. And I, I don't know how, how well they slept. He says, diet, exercise, and sleep. Exactly what you said. If you are intentional about taking care of yourself, you have a highly likelihood of living a healthier, longer life than if you eat Burger King for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah, there's there's a, there's a book you may want to read by Dale Bredensen. He's the head of the Buck Institute. Um, it's a neurological institute at UCLA. He, it's a book called The End of Alzheimer's. And his his specialty is an MD PhD. His specialty is actually um, been Alzheimer's research for the last thirty years. And he actually has put it into his book and talks about the five the six types of Alzheimer's: inflammatory type, um, atrophic type, toxic type, um, post traumatic, and then. Um, 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 vascular type and talks about what sets people up for that. And it's interesting how as a high-end neurological researcher, he basically created his own functional medicine way of addressing Alzheimer's, mm. you know? And so it's a great read. Anybody who has any family history of Alzheimer's or any neurological issue, it's a great read to look and see how important things like clean air, mold environment, diet, you know, 80% of people with Alzheimer's is a small study actually had spirochetes in the brain biopsy. Well, that your know, spirochetes are, are Lyme kind of stuff, but also they chronic gingivitis is actually caused by spirochetes. So there's all these connections wow. with infections and inflammation and neurological things. And when you learn these things, they can actually change the trajectory of your health. And they're basic stuff that's not fancy and expensive. You just have to know, you just have to be educated, which is huge because uh, most of us aren't. Most of us read a lot and we think that, or we, we research on you know Instagram or whatever, like you said, TikTok. <laughs> and, we think that's the, and we think that's the same thing as actually getting you know, well-educated. It's not. Well, Aaron, I thank you so much for being on the show today. I learned a lot. I mean, you really opened my, uh, my ears, my mind, my eyes. I learned a lot. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can we go to find out more about you and what you're doing in the world? Um, you can visit my website. It's uh, richmondfunctionalmedicine.com. Um, that's where I have a lot of educational stuff for free. Um, blogs, podcasts. I've got a book reading list and Dr. Bredensen's book is one of the many books on that reading list. It's my resource for people just to learn more about how they can take control of their health. And that's like the starting point for just, I think people learning more about functional medicine. Excellent. Well, again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your time today. Cause I know if I learned a lot, I know my listener did as well. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Mark, for inviting me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time and attention for listening to this episode of the Mark Stucheski podcast. Hey, are you a Mark Stucheski insider yet? This is my free email newsletter where I will send you value multiple times a week. And I promise you, every time I send an email out to my insiders, it always has value. So if you want to sign up, absolutely free. Just head on over to mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com.